listening to the weekly sermon podcast of Community Bible Church in Savannah, Georgia. If you would like to find out more about us, please visit our website at cbcsavannah.com. Good morning to you again. I know Bill said this already, but if you're a visitor with us, we're glad you're here. My name is Clint. I'm one of the pastors on staff, and I'm grateful for the opportunity to be here with you and open the word of God together. Before we jump into talking about what this passage means for us, let me just share with you what my hope is for our time together this morning. So if you were here with us this summer, you know that we just finished an eight-week series Uh, on the I am statements that Jesus makes in the Gospel of John. And we just finished that this last week talking about Jesus where he says, I am the bread of life. And the next week, we're gonna start a a series where we work through the book of Colossians. And I'm super excited um, to to just see what God's gonna do in and through our church as we jump into this book, jump into this letter together. And so all that to say, we are right in between these two sermon series. There's a term Um, that theologians use called already but not yet. And they use it to describe um, the the period of time in redemptive history that we live in. That we live in the already but not yet means that we live in a time where Jesus has already come, but he has not already yet come again to make all things new, as Revelation says. And so in the same way, um, well, we live in in that, between those two worlds and already but not yet. And in a similar way, rather, we, we live in a different type of already but not yet. That it's, summer's already over, School's already started back, but it's not yet fall, amen? Like that's low-hanging fruit. If I can't get an amen there, if if a go dogs, if go dogs or it's hot doesn't give us an amen, then we're gonna be in trouble. Um, But we finished this sermon series and we have one week before we kick off our fall series. And so we had this, this one week and we're thinking, we're praying and we're asking, hey, what are we gonna do with this time? How do we wanna shape it? How do we wanna reorient our hearts around who Jesus is and what he's done? And so my hope for this morning is simple. It's I'm not planning to bring anything new, at least for most of us, but my hope is that we would get back to what I think is easy for many of us to drift away from. Maybe this will help you. If you, do you remember when you were a kid, summer break was awesome, right? Um, You had two months to do just whatever you wanted to do. You were not even thinking about school. You're at the pool, you're riding your bike, whatever. You're just doing whatever you want to do. Hadn't read a book, hadn't picked up a pencil, like nothing, right? And then you get back in class and you go to try to write and it feels weird, doesn't it? You're like, I I don't even know how to write. What happened while I was gone? Um, That's my hope for our time together this morning that it takes a little time to get back into the swing and that we would spend some time this morning paying attention to what most of us just assume we understand. So if I were to ask you at the end of that summer, hey, do you know how to write? You'd say, of course. I've known how to write forever, but when you go to do it, it feels unnatural. And so my hope is to kind of draw us back into that. Hebrews 2, verse one will be on the screen. I kind of want this to frame our conversation. It says, we must pay closer attention to what we've heard lest we drift away from it. The word must uh, here means that this is necessary. So it's not a suggestion, right? It's not a suggestion, but rather a command in the scriptures to pay attention to what we've heard because if we don't, we will drift away from, from it. It's not this might happen to you. It's not, hey, you should stop smoking because if you don't, you might get cancer. It's not a greater probability. It's this will happen. If you don't pay attention, if you don't focus, you will drift. So the way I wanna shape this conversation is language that we're really familiar with. If you've been a part of our church for any length of time, you have no doubt heard us say this before. We say at the end of every one of our gatherings, be the church. 
We say this, and I'm not sure how many of us actually know what it means, but I've had several conversations with some of you who've come up and say, hey, I love how we say that every week. And I'm like, well, what does that mean to you? And it's always a different kind of scheme. And so what I wanna do is just to, to nail in, to go one, what does that mean? And two, how can we do it? If you go to our website, it's the first thing that you're gonna see there, be the church, right? Because, not because it's some kind of clever catchphrase, but because we want this to shape everything about the way we live our lives. This is a critical part of who we wanna be, who we wanna become, to be the church. And so again, I wanna answer the question, how? How can we be the church? Before we do that, we must kind of get on the same page about what it means when, when we say be the church. So just so, I'm not gonna spend a lot of time on, on defining the what, I wanna spend most of our time on the how, but the what is this, a simple answer is to be the church would be that we would seek to be who God has made us to be and to do the things God made us to do. So if you're a note taker and you're going, hey, what does it mean to be the church? That means that we should seek to do the thing or be who God made us to be and seek to do the things that God made us to do. And so again, how do we do that? When the book of Philippians, the Apostle Paul is writing to a church that he loves, this is one of the ch first churches that he planted, and the primary theme of this letter is encouragement, which is different than some of his other letters. So in Galatians or in Corinthians, he's writing to them in a corrective tone because they're missing the point altogether, and he's saying, hey, you need to get it together, but that's not what's happening in Philippians, right? He's encouraging them. He wants to encourage them to keep going, to keep living the life in, in response to who Jesus is and what he's accomplished for them. So it's not that they have yet drifted, he just wants to encourage them how not to drift. It's my same hope for us this morning. How are we not gonna drift away from being who, we, who God made us to be and doing what he made us to do? In Philippians 1 verse 27, Paul says something similar to what we mean when we say be the church. He says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. And that's another way you can define what it means to be the church, that we would let our manner of life be worthy of the gospel, that the truth of the good news of who Jesus is and what he's done would shape everything about the way we live. And I understand if you're new to church or maybe you're not so familiar with this language, that's some heavy Christianese right there. We would let the gospel live in a life worthy of the gospel, that we would let the good news of Jesus shape who we are and how we live. And I'm gonna help, under, help us understand this hopefully because Paul explains it in chapter two, and so from this passage, I'm gonna give us three things that we must remember if we don't wanna drift from being the church. And so three things here, look back at verse one. Paul says, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy. And so what Paul is doing here in this section is he's just said, Live a life worthy of the gospel. And then chapter two, the first part that we read earlier, this is, this is how you do it. This is how he answers the question. This is how you live a life worthy of the gospel. And he starts by explaining the benefits of the gospel and then he moves into how it should shape our lives. So in verse one, he just listed four things that are true about us because of who Jesus is. And I think rather than this being four different things, it's four different aspects of the exact same thing. And it's this idea of being in Christ. So the first thing that we need to pay attention to that I think we must remember is this, that we start in Christ. And there's emphasis on this, this little word in for a reason, and we'll see that here in a second. Because these two words, in Christ, may not seem like much, but this is one of the most foundational things the Bible teaches about what it means to be a believer. 
In fact, this is the primary way the Bible refers to those who we would think about being a Christian. So the word Christian's only used three times in the Bible. Almost every other time you'll see in Christ. Listen to some of these. I want you to, to hear this. I'm gonna go through it quickly. But it's important that we grab onto this idea. The most foundational thing the Bible teaches about who you are if you are a believer in Jesus. Romans 8 should be on the screen. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus. For the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. And so it says that in him, we are set free from condemnation. What would that be like if we understood that, believed it, lived out of that reality? It says we're free from sin and death. Second Corinthians chapter five says, therefore, if anyone is where? In Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come, and all of this is from God, who through, that's the same word in, who in Christ has reconciled us to himself, and he has gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So in Christ, we are made new. In Christ, our sins are no longer counted against us. And not only that, God gives us a new purpose. He gives us this ministry of reconciliation. And then one more, Ephesians chapter one. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through, again, the same word, in, in Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he blessed us in the beloved, that's Jesus. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. And so he says that in Christ, we are blessed with every spiritual blessing. In Christ, we are chosen, we are adopted as sons and daughters of God. In him, we have redemption. In him, we have forgiveness for our sins. And we could go on and on and on. This idea is on almost every page of the New Testament. This is the most foundational thing that can be said about a believer in Jesus, that we are in him. Theologians call this the doctrine of union with Christ. Union with Christ means that by faith, we are joined to Jesus. By faith, we are connected to him, that we are, and I'm gonna use this language a lot today, positionally in Christ. We are positionally in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, one more. God made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that where? In Christ, we, you and me, might become the righteousness of God, that Jesus dies the death that we deserve, that he pays the punishment for sins that he didn't commit, but it doesn't stop there. He says why. He did it so that his perfect life, the life that you and I could never even hope to live, could be credited to our account. If we ever want to be the church, if we want any shot at being who God made us to be in this world and doing the things that he made us to do, we cannot forget this, that we are in Christ and we start there. And here's why. If you're in Christ, it means that who you are to God is not determined by what you do. It's determined by what Christ has done for you. And as a result, every single time God the Father looks at you or thinks of you or turns his attention to you, instead of seeing your sin and seeing all the reasons why you don't measure up and all the reasons why I don't belong where I am, instead of seeing all of that, he sees the perfect righteousness of Jesus. 
Being in Christ means that God feels about you the same way he feels about Jesus. That changes everything. If God's disposition towards me right now and always, if I'm in him, in Jesus, is the way he feels about his son, that changes everything about the way I live my life. And Paul says, live a life worthy of the gospel, worthy of the good news. Not go and try to carry the weight of living a life that pleases God. No, live a life worthy of the gospel. Live in response to the good news that though you were far off, though you don't belong, though you don't measure up, you have been brought near. You are positionally in Christ that Jesus is offering to carry the weight of your guilt and shame for you. And Colossians 2 said he took all of your sin and all of your reason to feel guilty because you have a lot of it and so do I. He took that. Colossians 2 says, and he nailed it to the cross, which means it's not ours to carry anymore. And in Christ, this is true about us, whether we feel like it's true or not. And when Paul gives us this list in verse one, he's saying, it starts with Jesus. We start in Christ. He's saying it isn't up to us to muster up the motivation that we need to go and live a life that's worthy of the gospel. He's saying all the encouragement, if there's any encouragement in Christ, he's saying all the encouragement you need comes from believing from you are, that you are positionally in him. All the comfort you could ever want comes from knowing and believing that you are loved by God in Christ fully and completely. And then he says that we have a participation in the spirit. Another way to say that is to say that we have fellowship in the spirit, which means that being in Christ, we are given the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. So God now is not just this person who we have access to because of Jesus, it's a person who we have inside of us, who's with us always, who will never leave us or forsake us. And then Paul says in Christ, there is affection and sympathy. So other translations would say tenderness and compassion. In fact, that word affection there, or tenderness, it can also be translated intestines. And that sounds gross, right? But we get that. The point is that God, his disposition for us is an affection so deep that you feel it in your gut. That's how God feels about Jesus, which means if you're in Christ, united to him through faith, that's how he feels about you. God is compassionate, he's tender, he's affectionate, always. The way God feels about you is not based on what you do, but what Christ has done. And so if we wanna be the church, we must remember that we start in Christ, that our position of connection and relationship with God is what should motivate us to drive the way we live. Our position drives our practice, not the other way around. We're positionally in Jesus and it motivates the way we live our lives. And please hear that right because those two things are easily mixed up and the difference is staggering. Being in Christ means that we don't seek to obey God in order to earn his love. We seek to obey him because we are convinced that we already have it. That's different. And that does not honestly define most of the relationship that you walk in with Jesus, but it should. Almost every single time I have a meeting with someone pastorally, it can be traced back to a fundamental misunderstanding of the gospel that we downshift, we drift rather, into trying to earn God's love when in fact he's already given it to us in Jesus and we can never earn it in the first place. We obey God because we know he loves us and if God knows what is best and he loves me with this deep in the guts, tender, affectionate love, then I'm gonna do what he says. 
because it's our position in Christ that should motivate our practice of following him. And when explaining the life that is worthy of the gospel, the Apostle Paul says, it starts in Christ. If we wanna be the church, it starts in Christ. And then what's interesting is he starts by saying if there. Verse one, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any comfort from love, and it seems like he's saying this may or may not be true, but that's not what's happening here. This if is a lot more like what we mean when we say since. We say since when we assume something is true and we are connecting it to something else, and this is what Paul's doing here. Right? He's not wondering if there is encouragement or comfort to be found in Christ. He knows that to be true more than anything else in the world. And so he's connecting it to this idea of what he's about to say. Look at verse two. He said, if this is true, since this is true, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. And so again, I, I don't think this is four different things or five different things. I think it's different aspects of the exact same thing. So in verse one, the idea was being in Christ, and here the idea is unity in the church. And so remember, Paul, is, his point is described, this is what it looks like to live a life that's worthy of the gospel. This is what it looks like to be the church. And he says, since you are in Christ, since you're connected to God through Jesus, he says, now you're connected to one another. That's the, the argument there. That's what this means. The second thing that we need to keep coming back to, keep paying attention to, if we don't wanna drift from being the church, is the, this, that we can't do it alone. So we start in Christ and then we need to know that we can't do it alone. And Paul's point is if you've experienced the love of God for you in Christ, then the natural byproduct of that is to extend that love to the people around you. And what I want you to hear from this is that this isn't one option for Christianity. This is the only way to live as a Christian. That's it. To be in Christ is to understand that you are connected to God by the grace and mercy in Jesus, of Jesus, not because of anything we've done, but because of everything he's done for us. And if we're connected to God, then we're connected to one another. This is what it means to be a Christian. In John 13, Jesus is with his closest friends and he says this, by this, all, all people will know that you are my disciples. By this thing, all people will know that you follow after me if you have love for one another. If we're connected to God, then we're connected to one another. This is a natural byproduct, it's an overflow, right? And then here in Philippians 2, Paul says the same thing, have the same love, give and receive the same love. What love is he talking about? The love that we've received from God in Jesus, the love that we didn't earn, the love that we freely, he freely gives us by his grace. Paul says, give and receive that type of love to one another. And so our position in Christ should drive our practice of love for one another, and this will create unity in the church. And this can't be done alone. Or even how most of us try to do it, this can't be done with just surface level relationships. Paul anticipates that this is gonna be hard for us to understand, and so he explains. And so at first he says, this is what it's not, and then this is what it is. Look at verse three. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. This do nothing means this isn't a suggestion either. This is a command. He says, do nothing, and then he gives two categories. He says, selfish ambition, 
and conceit, which seems like the same thing, but it's not. Let me try to help you. Selfish ambition is seeing the people around you and taking, instead of offering the love to them that you've received from God, you take an inventory of your life and then you, what motivates the way you live in your relationship with them is that you wanna be happier than they are. That's selfish ambition. So they have a nice house and you see that. So what motivates you to get up and go to work every day and try to earn a living is not uh, providing for your family or, or even just working hard because God says we should, it's because you want a nicer house than they have. If they have a new car, you need a newer one. If they have two great kids, or at least it seems that way because no one's kids are great if we're honest, right? You have to have three. It's a one-upsmanship of, of this is selfish ambition and on and on we can go. And it's not just keeping up with the Joneses as wicked and evil as that is. This is seeing the Joneses and going, I need to beat him. That's selfish ambition. And then if and when you get there, you wanna flaunt it in front of him just to show him that you did it. Other translations of this say rivalry. Paul says, do nothing from this place in your heart, living as if you are enemies, because you're connected to God, which means you're connected to one another, which means you're family. That you would extend to people the love that you have received from God, there should be unity. And then he says, do nothing from conceit. And again, this seems like the same thing, but it's not. So if selfish ambition is I need to beat her, I need to beat him, I need to outdo him, then conceit is how you act if you don't get there. If you don't get to that spot. Here's how it works itself out. The, the word in the original language here, conceit, is two Greek words that are smashed together that literally translate vain glory or empty pride. And so here's how we do this. When, something, when you see someone who you don't like and something goes wrong in your life and you get happy about that, that's conceit. When you celebrate other people's failures, that's what this is talking about. And how wicked is that? That we would derive a sense of joy in our lives from seeing people who we don't like for whatever reason, and we see them fall on their face. And the exhortation here is do nothing from that place because we should be the first ones there to help them up, not laugh at them when they're down. We also do this when we compare ourselves to other people and we feel like we don't measure up. And we grow envious or jealous or probably even angry. Paul says do nothing from this place but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And if you're wondering if there's a loophole there, there's not. Look at verse four. Let each of you look not only to his own interests but also to the interests of others. So the easiest way and I can explain this, is that we need to stop living our lives through the lens of thinking toward everyone, what can you do for me? And we need to start living our lives through the lens of what can I do for you? Right? It means that we need to be willing to assume the best of the people around us even when they don't deserve that from us. So someone cuts you off in traffic, right? Someone swerves in, in front of you or cuts you into your lane. Instead of losing your mind and thinking to yourself, who do you think you are, right? That's the first response in our minds and our heart. They cut you off and you're like, how could you? Don't you know who I am, right? Like we're kind of kidding around, but that's our response. We, we're offended because we feel like we've personally been sinned against. Instead of that, you assume the best. Maybe there's an emergency. I don't know. Maybe they just got a phone call of the worst news in their lives. 
and they're rushing home to get to that. Maybe they're frantic. Hey, this is gonna sound crazy. Maybe they made a mistake. We've done that before too, right? Maybe they didn't see you and go, I'm gonna cut them off. Maybe they were just like, made a mistake. Who knows? Thinking about something else. We all do it. Instead of flipping out and letting it ruin our day, we consider their interests. Maybe you pray for them. God, I don't know if this is what's happening, but if they're rushing home for an emergency, I pray for their family. I ask that you would bless them, that you would protect them, that you would be with them. Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. This should be the disposition of love and grace that we have toward one another, especially in the church. That we would lay down our who do you think you are? We lay it down in humility, as if the people around us owe us something and we assume the best. But this doesn't mean that we allow people to take advantage of us or abuse us. And so while we assume the best, we also need to be willing to ask hard questions. And so if someone does something that offends you, and we're joking about traffic, but I'm talking about if someone does something that actually harms you or offends you, no matter how big or how small, instead of immediately writing them off or beginning to pray that their lives fall apart, we assume the best of why they might have done what they did, but then we need to be willing to, and have the courage to circle back around and have a hard conversation. Or ask a question and be honest and just say, Hey, when you did that, I don't know what your intent was, but when you did that, it hurt me in this way. I just wanted to be honest with you. I don't know what your intent was. Can you help me understand why you did that? And again, this is not gonna always go well. It's not, but that's what's commanded of us in the scriptures. And I promise you, it will go better than you immediately drawing for the sword and going for the throat or turning to battle anytime someone's wrongs you. And so my encouragement to you is just just to try this in your relationship. The ones that are closest to you. If you're married, do it in your marriage. If you have kids, do it in your kids. If you have a roommate, do it there. Whoever, your parents, whatever. Do this. Instead of the, if they hurt you, instead of immediately assuming that that was their intent, just assume the best. And then be willing to be honest and have a conversation. Paul's point is that if we are connected to God, we are connected to one another. Friends, we cannot do this alone. The word in verse three that's translated count others there, more significant than yourselves, it's a word that shows up over 50 times in the New Testament and most of the time it's translated one another. See these commands in the scripture of how we're supposed to interact with one another, things like Galatians five, serve one another in love. Romans 12, love one another with brotherly affection like family, outdo one another in showing honor. Romans 14, do not judge one another. Ouch. It's a command. Second Corinthians 13, greet one another. Ephesians 4, be kind to one another and forgive one another. And I can go on and on and on. And again, the point is that if we're gonna be the church, if we're gonna be who God wants us to be and do what he has called us to do in the world, we can't do it alone. You cannot be faithful to the one another commands if you don't know anyone if you're not in relationship with anyone. This is why we have the model, gather, grow, go, because as we come together, we have an opportunity to see and experience God in a way that we can't on our own. This is why you podcasting in your car is good for your soul and your heart, but it is not being faithful to the commands of God in your life completely, that we live it out in community, that we need each other to be faithful to that. And the reality is we can't be faithful to these commands if we don't know each other. I'll even go a step farther. 
I don't think we can be faithful to the commands of God of the one another's in scripture if the only time we see each other is most Sunday mornings each month. If that's all we got, I don't think we're getting there. And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying we shouldn't keep gathering like this, right? I think this is right and this is good. I just think being the church means that God is calling us to go deeper. He's calling us to go deeper than just showing up on Sunday morning. He's calling us to press in with one another and the way that we try to do that is through our community groups. So this is the way we define our community groups. I want you to hear this and then think about if you have any relationships like this in your life. Community groups are smaller groups of people who regularly gather and are intentionally committed to help one another follow Jesus. So what I'm not gonna say in this sermon is that you must be in a community group. What I am gonna say is that you must, if you're gonna be faithful to the commands of God in your life, you must have relationships with people in who, with whom you regularly gather and both of you guys and girls, whatever, y'all are intentionally committed to help one another follow Jesus. That is biblical community. We do that through community groups. And listen, what I didn't say was that our groups are perfect, because they're not. Maybe you tried a group before and it didn't work at a different church, or maybe you tried one here at CBC and it didn't work, and you said, I'm done with that, it doesn't work for me. Or maybe you were in a group before at a different church and it was awesome, you were in a different season of life and it was amazing, and you have this, well, praise God for that, but now you have this super high expectation about what group life should be, and anything else is a waste of time. Our groups aren't perfect. It might be awkward, it probably will. As you show up at someone's house that you don't know and people you don't know, that probably will be awkward and you will always be able to find an excuse for why you can't make it this week. Let me just encourage you this way. Despite all of that, I'm convinced that if you commit yourself to help a group of people follow Jesus and they do the same for you, when it's all said and done, you're not gonna feel like that investment was a waste of time. That if you want spiritually significant relationships in your life, you need to commit to a group of people, play the long game. You're not gonna feel like that was a waste of time. The truth is, too many of us are trying our best to figure it out on our own, but it's never gonna work. It's impossible. So if we wanna be the church, we must remember, we start in Christ, we can't do it alone, and then look at this, the last thing, verse five, he says, have this mind, what mind? The mind of love, the mind of unity, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours, in Christ Jesus. If those last three words weren't there, we are on an uphill climb. But Paul comes right back to where he started. He said, this mind is yours, where? In Christ. This can only be done in him. And so the third thing we need to remember, we stay in Christ, we can't do it alone, and then, or we start there, we can't do it alone, and then we stay there. We stay in Christ, we continually come back to him, again, because it's our position in Jesus that drives our practice and not the other way around. Who we are to God is not determined by what we do, it's determined by what Christ has done. And I say this, that we stay in Christ, not just we start in Christ, because inevitably what happens is I start talking about the one another's, I start talking about community group, our minds immediately go to all the things we have to do in order to be who God wants us to be. And as soon as we do that, we get them mixed up. We believe now it's our practice that's driving our position. We drift. Paul says, stay in Christ. Remember, it's your position that drives your practice. Let me help you 
think about how this might apply to your life. This might sting a bit for some. So if you're new and you don't know me, I'm just asking you to have the courage to enter into this conversation. If you consistently struggle with anxiety, if your life is covered in doubt and you feel exhausted by it, and you live your life in a fear of letting people down, and you, as much as you try not to go there in your heart and mind, no matter what you do, you keep coming back to this thing in your mind, this lie that bubbles up that says, I'm a bad mom, I'm a bad person, or I'm a bad husband, or I'm a bad whatever. If that keeps coming back in your mind, you constantly wonder, am I doing enough to please God? Am I doing enough to please the people around me? And you bounce back and forth where one day, one minute, you feel like God loves you and he delights in you. And then as soon as you drop the ball, you feel the overwhelming need to run and hide from God because you can't stand how dirty you feel, how guilty you feel, how shameful you feel, if that's you, even a little bit you're getting position and practice mixed up. You're believing that who you are is determined by what you do rather than what Christ has done, that in order for God to love you, you need to measure up. You need to do enough, you need to be enough. And if we're honest, it's easy to do that, isn't it? Because everything in our life preconditions us that it's our practice that drives our position. So if we have a position at work, it's because we did something to get there. If we have a grade or success in academics, it's because we worked hard to get there. And we bring this into our relationship with God and we think whatever position I want with him, I have to work to get it. And we think if we're not doing the work we, sh we should be doing, then we don't have that position. Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And you hear that and you think, my life looks nothing like that. And we assume that means God must not love us. And so we run from him until we can clean ourselves up enough to feel good about coming back to him and saying, God, look at all the things that I've done. Do you love me now? Is this enough, right? We, we live our lives in this posture of fear from God and we forget all the while that it is our position that he has given to us in Christ that should drive our practice. We get it backwards and that operating system might work for a bit, but what happens when you mess up again, but this time it's worse and again and again and again until you feel like you're too far gone and we live our lives wishing that there was something we could do to make ourselves right with God and all the while, we forget that we never did anything to make us right with him in the first place. Jesus did. This is the truth of the gospel, that we start in Christ, but we stay there. We keep coming back to this place. Jesus is the only one who actually has the right to say to us, who do you think you are? And yet he lays every bit of that down so that we could experience the love of belonging to God as a child. God gives us that. Paul says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, which means that you, who you are to God is not determined by what you do, but by what Christ has done. It's so easy to forget that. It's another reason why we must have community in our lives, that we'd have people in our corner who know us, people who know our proclivity to believe lies that say, I'm a bad mom. People we can text and say, will you pray for me? And they know what we're talking about. 
People in our corner who we've committed to and say, I'm gonna help you follow Jesus, will you do the same for me? And we lock arms together and play the long game together. I don't wanna show up to group tonight, but I'm gonna do it because I know it's worth it. Because in the end, I'm gonna be better for it. I wanna be more like Jesus and so are these people. I'm gonna extend love to them, not because they deserve it, but because I've received a love that I don't deserve. We start in Christ, we can't do it alone, and we stay in Christ. I want, us, I want us to finish this time the way we started it. So if you would stand with me, I just wanna read Philippians chapter two. Again, I said, the only person, the only one who actually has the right to say, who do you think you are? The only one who actually is owed something from the people around him lays it all down so that we could experience the love of belonging to God as a child. Paul starts this section saying, start in Christ. He ends it going, stay in Christ. And so I wanna read this part for us. And then let's sing and respond to the good news of the gospel together. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, by being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen.